0: Matthew eighteen, verse fifteen uh, through twenty. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, they're the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the very few times in the life of the Lord that we know of where He says the word "church," where He makes mention of the church, and uh, gives gives uh, instructions for the church that will be formed after He dies and rises again and pours out His Spirit to form the church. So, of course, we don't just believe that the red letters in the Bible are the words of the Lord Jesus, all that stuff. Paul writes, come to us from the Spirit of Christ as well. But here is the Lord even before He's died for the church, giving instructions for how the church is to be governed and to be cared for. Before I read this, it's a famous church discipline passage. I want to make one brief observation, which is that uh, this passage on church discipline doesn't say anything about any of the leadership of the church being involved. And neither do any of the other church discipline passages anywhere in the Bible, except the one that talks about disciplining the church leadership. In First Timothy chapter five, I'm not going there tonight. Well, I am a little bit, but not for that sake. Um, I say that to say not that pastors shouldn't be involved when there's deep pastoral needs in the church; they should, and they often will be. I say that because the the task of guarding the church's holiness and discipling the people of the church is your task. It's your task. It belongs to you. It is given to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is is the task of the ordinary people of God to even go so far as to raise ones for discipline in the local church. So there can be no sort of sense of like, well, the pastors aren't doing it. The, the, The priests aren't doing it. Sort of, we, we get into, so we, go, we revert to a Catholic mentality. We're just a lowly laity. What can we do but watch them do this exciting work of ministry? But, but to my mind, not only does Jesus give the task of ministry to the local church, but he gives the hardest kind of ministry there could possibly be church discipline to the local church. So you are not junior varsity. You are not, you're not triple A ball. All of us who are believers are playing in the big leagues. We're playing literally in the things of eternity where we are really responsible for displaying to the world who is in and out of the kingdom. And we're going to notice as we go through this, this very abused verse at the end of the passage where two or three or more are gathered in My name, there you should claim something and demand that Jesus do it. That's not what it says. Uh, This promise we'll see, where two or three or more are gathered in My name, is is the promise that the smallest churches in the world are exercising discipline on behalf of Jesus. So it's, it's not big churches or established churches or strongly denominationally supported churches or whatever, wherever there's real believers gathering, then the Christians of that church, the ordinary, daily, non-officers of the church are responsible for the deepest purity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as His commission to you, hear the words of the Lord. Matthew 18, verse 15, "...if your brother..." sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by My Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in My name, there am I among them. Let's pray. Father, the practice of these verses has led to horrific abuse in the church. And the neglect of these verses has led to horrific abuse in the church. We beg you that we would be able to obey the words and the spirit of these verses which are from your mouth as a word of love to us. We pray that You would grip every single believer here with the reality that this is our responsibility and that You want us to be a gift, even a disciplining gift, to the, to the church of Jesus Christ and to the world. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been talking about unity. And we've been talking about the unity of the local church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, there is a spiritual unity between all Christians in all times and all places. But at the end of the day, where unity gets fleshed out and lived and perceived is in local congregations, outposts of the greater kingdom of God. And we talked about in John 17 how unity is something the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for even on the eve of His death. It was that concerning to Him. It was something so on His heart that He was praying for it as He prepared to die. Because of course, as He died, He was purchasing the foundation for all Christian unity. He was paying the blood price that would unite all of those who would believe in Him. And we saw that not only did Jesus pray for this unity, but this unity had a tremendous purpose. That they might know that you sent me. That the world might believe that you sent me. And so there's something evangelistic about the unity of the church. Uh, The ordinary church in the most ordinary places living a life of love is the ultimate billboard for the gospel. It's the ultimate magnetic force that would be used of the Holy Spirit to draw people in towards the gospel. And on the flip side, disunified churches, even though they're preaching disunified, I don't know if that's a word, what am I saying? Anyway, not unified. So churches that are not unified, though they might preach solid doctrine, actually give the gospel a black eye. And And they mar... Uh, the Gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. And they might be out on the streets doing evangelism all the time, and yet the community knows they don't love one another. So I don't know how we could talk about Jesus loving them. But John 17 says, when you love and you're united in love, then the people of the world will know "...that I have loved you and the Father has loved you." So we saw that unity is prayed for. We saw it's promised. Then last night we looked at the character required for unity. We don't just need to know our duties to keep unity. We we also need to know what kind of character is required. And of course, it's that gentleness that the Holy Spirit produces. And it's that forbearance and that love that is produced in us by the Holy Spirit that allows us to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." And tonight, what I want to do is talk about the vital role that church discipline plays in guarding the unity. Now, you might be saying, well, wait a second, that makes no sense. Because isn't church discipline when you exclude someone from the local church? Isn't it when you take someone... In put them out of the local church. Different churches express this differently. Some do it by not allowing a disciplined member from participating in the Sunday meeting. I think all Christians are agreed that a disciplined member would not partake of the Lord's Supper. But there's always going to be some way that a church communicates, you're not with us anymore. You're not in the fellowship of the Spirit in the bond of peace anymore. And so how can disunifying, how can how can unbuckling your relationship from someone be a unifying act. And here's why. It's because we're not after a unity at all costs. We are just simply not after bringing everyone together at all costs. We're after a holy unity. We're after a unity that is centered on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ does not teach us how to excuse ungodliness, but the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us how to deny ungodliness and every worldly lust. And so when we see someone who refuses to deny ungodliness and refuses to repent of sin, we are looking at someone who we don't want to be in unity with, because they really, literally destroy the holiness and the sweetness and the love of the church. And so, the reason why disunifying with someone can be a holy and a good act is because we're not trying to preserve unity at all costs. It's because we're trying to preserve a unity that's a reflection of heaven. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the church is seeking to, to make a little picture of the kingdom of God here on earth. The, the world is doing its very best to show us what hell will look like, and the, the church is to be doing its very best to show us what heaven will look like. And when the church quits practicing church discipline, then the church ceases to be an outpost that can really display heaven. There was an old Southern Baptist theologian by the name of J.L. Dagg, and he said, when church discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. That is so sobering and so real. that when church discipline leaves, then Christ, the Lord of discipline, Leaves the church as well. And I, I want to say this too. Here's a major misconception I want to make sure we get a, get um, across. Sometimes you'll hear parents talk like this. Oh boy, I was just loving my kids and loving my kids. I was loving them all day, but oh boy, they were disobedient. Maybe kids, you've heard your parents talk like this. Just loving them and loving them and all day long, but they were so disobedient and i finally just had to spank him you know so i was loving him but then i had to spank him and what's wrong with that sentence what's wrong with that sentence is they were getting loved when the uh, board of education was getting applied to the seat of knowledge that that was loved discipline to to unabusively wisely and biblically apply the rod to the child is not when you finally lost your love but it's It's an act of love. And when the church um, practices discipline, and even through the whole process of Matthew 18, we'll notice this, it's not because the church is sort of losing it and running out of steam and burning the candle at both ends and not able to keep up all this warm-hearted love and just had enough of these sinners hanging around and so we're going to get them out. No, no, no. Discipline is not what happens when the church runs out of love. The church... Discipline is an act of love from start to finish. Even we'll see this in 1 Corinthians 5 where an immoral man is put out of the church. It's so that he will be saved on the last day. You come to a place where you say, you know what, evangelism didn't work and being in the church didn't work and so actually we're hoping the most effective thing will be being put out of the church but the heart is still the same. I want to see him in heaven. So there's, there's never at any stage ever in the process of church discipline is there ever a sense in which the church stops loving sinners. We love sinners, or we're simply not the church of, the, of Jesus Christ who loved and loves sinners. So, uh, Matthew 18 begins with a reminder that not all church discipline cases are the same. Matthew 18 begins with a reminder that not all church discipline cases are the same. So it says, "...if your brother..." sins against you. That's the, that's the premise. That's the, that's the foundation of what Jesus' teaching is going to be based on. Here's what you do if your brother sins against you. We talked about Daniel Doriani's uh, four areas of application. Duty, character, discernment, goal. Well, this is duty. If this happens, then here's what you're called to do. Sometimes Christians get the idea that in any situation... They need when something happens, they need to then pray that the Holy Spirit would lead them and guide them into what to do. And there is a sense in which that's true. But if the Holy Spirit has already said in his Spirit inspired word what to do, then you're in sin to ask him what to do. Because he already said what to do. So if your brother sins against you, pray about it for years, asking the Lord to guide you. Oh sounds so pious. It's just it's massacre it's just painted disobedience. Yeah. If your brother sins against you, here's what you do. Now, the reason I say that this reminds us that not all church discipline cases are the same is could not all church discipline cases are just about a brother sinning individually against you. In fact, let's just survey, if you would, with me the church discipline verses in the new testament we'll see that they are not one size fits all and i'll just say this as a pastor it's very comforting that they're not one size fits all because every time i dealt with discipline and have dealt with discipline you're like wow this doesn't fit perfectly into that verse so i need the whole teaching of scripture to think about what to do but i don't just need it as a pastor you need it as the people of God charge with maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, uh, the first passage I would point, your, point you towards would be Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. And in Romans chapter 15, um, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Romans chapter 16, Verse 17, we get a very different kind of discipline. It's not a matter of personal sin, someone personally sinning against you. It's just someone who's divisive in the body. Someone who's in the body stirring up division, stirring up dissension. You don't need to establish it with two or three witnesses because everybody knows it's happening. It's out in the open already. And uh, and Paul says, I appeal to you brothers, this is uh, chapter 16, verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid such people, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And so, what are we to do? Well, there's someone causing division. There's someone causing uh, uh, the church to be divided. They're putting uh, things in the way of people being saved. Maybe like the Judaizers in Galatians who said you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. When that's happening, you avoid such people. Well, that's not polite. Well, we're hoping to all go to heaven. And if we want to all go to heaven, we need to be willing to do things that aren't always polite so that we guard the truth. And we are, devo- I-, I remember a young man, I told him, I said, There's a gentleman in the church right now and he's slandering the elders, and uh, you need to be aware of him. And he ignored me because I wasn't being as gracious as he wanted to be. And he got himself involved in this man who was slandering the elders. And by the mercy of God, He came to me six months later and said, I have not been profiting from the ministry. I have not been really warm towards the elders. And it's because I went and I listened to that slander. And I took it in. And so, if you want to ruin your ability to profit from the Word of God, you will ignore the Word of God and spend time with people sowing dissension. You are to avoid such people. Uh, sometimes the, con- the conversation comes up, what, this actually comes up every time we practice church discipline. Well, what, how do we treat the person who's just been disciplined? And I always answer, depends on the person. Yeah. There, we, we have one fellow who's been disciplined for Emmanuel. He's sitting right there every time I preach. He's always at the services. He's peaceable. He's unsaved. Open to hearing the Gospel. He's been disciplined, but he causes nobody any trouble. There's another person who could come in and their only goal is to Divide. One can be evangelized as an unbeliever, the other must be avoided at all costs, lest you be corrupted by their poison. First uh, Corinthians chapter five is an, another passage on church discipline. This one a very different passage. Uh, this this the passage of the church that thought they were being gracious by not practicing church discipline. And you can imagine this, right? Well, you know, I mean we're just showering them with grace. He's sleeping with his uh, father's wife, showering him with grace, and uh, Paul says, "Don't, don't kid yourself. Yeah. Don't kid yourself." And here, uh, Paul doesn't have any kind of long stages like you see in Matthew 18. Uh, there's not even a warn once, then twice, as we see in Titus. There's an immediate severing of the relationship because it is so clear that this sin. Uh, could not be going on among the people of God and can't be tolerated. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that she reported, this is chapter 5 verse 1, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. They were proud of how gracious they were being. Ought you not to rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Do you hear it? This is amazing heart. He's like, this is horrible. There's this indignant... Righteous reaction, get him out now, and once he 's out, I hope he 'll be saved on the last day. so you just see you see the the kindness and the severity of the Lord formed in the heart of the apostle paul he he is not even though it's a it 's a now it 's a take action kind of a situation it 's not I hate him it 's not it 's not vindictive. I want his spirit to be saved in the last day but you know what happens when people are allowed to function like they're in the family of God when they're living a double life. Do you know what happens? They get inoculated to the Gospel. You actually help them lie to themselves. You know, hey brother, hey sister. And the person's going, oh good, I am a brother. And and you become guilty of giving that false assurance that nobody should be given. And so Paul says, out! Out! But I want them to be saved. And he goes on. He says, "Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump?" Now, some of you uh, bake. I hope. If you do, I'd like to. Maybe tomorrow you could bring some by uh, the meeting. No, but uh, you know, uh, you know that just a little leaven, a little yeast uh, in a little bit of dough. I used to always see this on my grandmother's uh, kitchen counter. Can make this. This unbelievable ball of dough come up out over the the the, the, bowl, the the top of a bowl, but it's amazing when you see how much yeast is used. It's you might look at that and say, uh, if you asked a man maybe, how much yeast would that take? Oh, it'd take at least seven cups or something like that. But 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 it actually just takes a little tiny pinch. And Paul's argument here is, you you leave one guy like this in the church. And it will affect the whole church. I heard about a a pastor who divorced his wife and within two years, there were six other couples divorced in the church. We affect each other, brethren. We affect each other. You may be just holding on to your marriage. You may be just holding on to your family. And you are doing a profound ministry. You are doing a profound ministry. You may be just holding on to your holiness by the skin of your teeth. And you are holding on to an example that may even be turned into a legacy in due time. Do not discount the day of hard family discussions and hard marriage days. God can use those in the course of decades. Don't fritter them away in a moment. It will affect everyone involved. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed let us there celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I love that. He describes church life as a Passover celebration. He basically said, let's celebrate! But not by including the immoral in the celebration. Let's celebrate this Passover of being Christians and having received Christ our Passover Lamb by worshiping Him in sincerity and in truth. Um, Turn with me, if you will, to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, and very similar passage to the book of Romans. A little bit more of a staged process in Titus uh, chapter 3. Uh, In Titus chapter 3, uh, verse 10, uh, the Apostle Paul says these words. Titus chapter 3, verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So again, this warning that division needs to be dealt with clearly, a little bit patiently, but then decisively. Once, then twice, then after that have nothing more to do with that person. I do want you to notice, if you will, that every passage we've read makes a spiritual assessment of the person being disciplined. They are Gentile and tax collectors, uh, Matthew uh, 18. They are old leaven, or they are the evil person, First Corinthians 5. They are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. So th- there's always this statement that when a person is disciplined, we are saying something about the status of their souls. Now that messes with us because we say these really pious things like this. Well, we're, we're not God. How can we know What's happening in a person's heart? How can we say they're warped and sinful? We're not omniscient. We're not God. Well, that's exactly right. We are not God, but God has told us how to judge the heart. He's told us that a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And I'll admit there are some trees you can't quite sure, you're not quite sure what's happening, but in due time, uh, trees eventually show themselves. And so I I know of one person. ministry that encourages the practice of discipline, but they'll say things like, when they discipline people, we're not saying you're going to hell, we're just not saying we know you're going to heaven. That that falls short of the biblical witness. The, the Bible says more than that in reference to discipline. Um, one last verse. Uh, this one is the most difficult. Uh, we have not had to practice this at Emmanuel, uh, but I, I kind of regularly... Try to bring it up because I just think it will be so hard to practice when we do practice it uh, that I want the body to be aware of what the practice would look like. This is the only disciplined passage in the Bible that I'm aware of that says, enact discipline, but treat him like a brother. This is not warped and sinful person. So, uh, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3 is dealing with laziness. Uh, they're dealing with laziness. And he says in 2 Thessalonians 3.13 As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. This is 2 Thessalonians 3.13 As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy But warn him as a brother. This has always been just a fascinating passage for me. And I think the way I take this is there are some sins which we don't want to immediately say, you're not a brother. We don't want to take the first lazy guy in the church and say, you're not a brother. But for which some action on the part of the church might stimulate the growth of that person. Now what's amazing here is that Paul says that what might stimulate that growth is shame. Now my experience is that Americans, and I don't mean that as a Canadian, I just mean Westerners, can't think of anything good coming out of shame. Shame is the big note. You made him feel ashamed. And like that's the worst thing that can ever happen. Well, sometimes I tell my boys when they're acting wimpy that they ought to be ashamed. Stand up, boy. There's a right time to feel a proper shame. And there may be a time in the church's life to say, hey, listen, not going to work and letting your wife starve is not okay. We're not going to call you an unbeliever. You're a brother. But we're not going to fellowship with you like everything's okay. Now, eventually that might have to move into a more formal church discipline situation I'll leave that to the elders to decide how to think through that. But there does seem to be that category of someone who is in sin, but Paul's not ready to call him an unbeliever, but he is willing to take some sort of action in his life to sort of stimulate his growth. So, uh, Matthew chapter 18, not all church discipline cases are the same. Not all church discipline cases are the same. Now, Our passage deals with personal sin. We're going to go through this tonight because this is where church is what affects most of us uh, most immediately. Uh, We often wind up sinned against. Even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ by real Christian believers, uh, we can be lied about. We can have someone refuse to listen to us. Uh, We can have our property stolen. Uh, We can be slandered against. People can break their word to us. Uh, They can just fail to love us. If your idea of church life is, hey, they teach the Bible there and it's all going to be great and I'll just marry this biblical girl and it'll even be greater and then we'll have some biblical kids and it'll just be uh, the seventh heaven. I just hope someone there's to, someone's there to catch you on the way down. Because, because, because the, the church, although she is, I was telling this to a new believer this last week, the church will be fundamentally different than the world. But you'll see traces of the world uh, throughout the course of your life in the church. Uh, you're, you're not in heaven yet. And so the church will be different, fundamentally changed, but still wrestling. And, and any Christian on a worse day can be a David. Uh, any Christian on a bad day can refuse to take heed lest he fall. And they might fall in such a way that they sin against you. And we're told here what to do. We're told what to do. This is such a grace. We're not in the dark. We, we know what to do in the case of sin. We know what to do. We're not, we're not lost. And Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell all the people in your small group and pray for him. Except that's not what it says. If your brother sins against you, go tell the elders. If your brother sins against you, go tell your friend in another city who doesn't know anything about it, just so you have someone to bounce things off of. Now there is a place for seeking wisdom sometimes. Don't want to completely discount that, but at the end of the day, the end of any wisdom needs to be: if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Yeah. Now, at this point, there's this common reaction. People might even want to come up to me and say it after the service, and so I'll just uh, hedge off at the pass here. And, and, and that's the people. They say this like, like if this is a surprise. You know, I'm really not. I don't like confrontation. And you're like, so you're human. That, that's not a special personality trait. Okay? That, that's most of the human race. Uh, uh, Mark Dever, the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, says, I've preached on. Church discipline in Asia, and Asians tell me that church discipline will not work in Asian cultures. And I've preached in church discipline in Africa, and Africans tell me that church discipline will not work in African cultures. And I've preached on church discipline in South America, and South Americans tell me that church discipline will not work in South American cultures. Beloved, church discipline only works in one culture, the Bible's culture made in local churches where people are filled with the Spirit of God. That's where it works. It's it's not because North Americans can handle it. It, it's, It's not like that. It's not because you have a personality that's good at this. Nobody has a personality that's good at this. But we're called to love. And when we refuse to talk to our brother, we're not loving them. Do you realize that when you refuse to talk to your brother or your sister about sin, there are now two people in need of church discipline. I mean that. Them and you. You are now sinning against them because you are not loving their soul. Do you remember what Ezekiel was told? I believe it's in Ezekiel 3. Or He was told, if you don't go tell the wicked man about his sin, then his blood is on your head. But if you go tell him, then his blood is on his head. We are our brother's keepers. We are. I'm just praying the Holy Spirit will work in their life. Guess where the Holy Spirit is? He's in you. Well, I'm just praying the Holy Spirit will lead me. Guess where He leads from? The Bible. And so, the Bible plus you, equals do something about it. And the do something is, go and tell him his fault. If there is a clear sin that's been committed against you, and I'm not talking about, oh, they were a little bit quick on the way out the door. It's the glory of a man to overlook an offense. But what I'm talking about is there is a clear violation of a clear scriptural principle you are to go and speak to that person and if you don't we don't just have one disobedient person but two and we and the, you you multiply a little leaven leavens the whole lump just a few people who won't speak to each other creates more people who are bitter more people who can't hear the Bible preach on Sunday because they oh, they don't even do it. I mean, they preach it and that guy's up there getting passionate. But it doesn't actually affect anything. I remember one of my most vivid memories of my ministry at Emmanuel Baptist Church was early in my ministry, I'm preaching and there's this young guy with all these big ideas. And, and then we had a clear case of church discipline. And the church, with fear and trembling, decided to put someone out of the church And to my mind, it was like the moment the fear of the Lord fell on the church. It was like we are not dealing with some guy yelling from the pulpit. We are dealing with God. We're we're dealing with God here. And so your call, if someone has sinned against you, is to go and tell them their fault. And I'm not going to read them, but I have five verses here. You can ask for them later. If you go and tell someone else their fault, the Bible calls this gossip. And it separates friends. There may be all kinds of little separations in this very congregation because all kinds of people know things about each other but have never talked to that person about that problem. And so you're like, well, I know this about them, and I know that about them but all of that would have been avoided if each of us would just go directly to the person we've sinned against and tell them their fault notice the emphasis between you and him alone so there's no prayer chain hey going to going to John's house tonight pray for me you know what you can get in your car and no one needs to know you go over there and you're between him and you and him alone there's a scriptural principle here that I think is an operation, and that is that sin should be dealt with as privately or as publicly as it was committed. Sin should be dealt with privately or as publicly as it was committed. It's right for elders to be rebuked publicly because their ministries are public, especially if there's false teaching or gross immorality. If someone lies about you, Jesus is moving in so graciously to control the damage to make sure it doesn't spread out, but it just gets dealt with between you and that person alone. Isn't that kind? You don't have to wind up being ashamed in front of the whole church every time you sin. But the person comes to you alone guarding your dignity and guarding your integrity and speaks to you alone about your sin. Can I ask you a question? What would it be like for someone to do that to you? How would that be for them? We've been thinking about how hard it would be for you to do that. Part of the reason we think that it's so hard for us to do that is because, we, oh, they'd never listen. Oh, they'd blow up. They're so defensive. They'd just accuse me of my sin. What would it be like if someone came to you to talk to you about your sin? would they find someone who loves correction one of the things one of my problems in my christian life is i do not experience correction as love because i well first of all it's just because i'm a sinner but specifically i've also a sinner who's been raised in a culture that teaches us that the only way to communicate love is affirmation unless you're affirming me you're not loving me. Unless you're telling me how good I am and how great I am and how on my way I am and how I'm growing, you're not just not loving me, but what do people say? They say, oh, you're hurting me! And so then all of a sudden you feel like the guy who like just killed someone. You're like, I came here in response to the Matthew 18 sermon and now I'm at the scene of a crime and I'm the criminal. <laughs> do you use your hurt as a weapon to make sure no one ever says anything to you. Do, you? do you get mad in such a way that says, you can say it, but it's going to be hard for you? Do you out-argue and out-maneuver the person who's bringing this to you? I have a dear, dear co pastor who has the spiritual gift of discerning aromas. And I don't mean by that that he uses aromatherapy or anything like that. He'll just say in certain situations, Well, I understand that you're saying you're innocent of everything, but the aroma's pretty bad. And that is, you sure are a defensive, proud kind of innocent. Who are you to correct? Are you an easy person to correct? Wouldn't it be interesting if, just, if instead of just tolerating rebuke, we invited it? We invited it. The Lord disciplines those He loves. He, he reproves those He loves. He loves. And what would happen if we were to begin to walk through this church and as you interact with people and say, you know that sermon, I just want you to know if there was ever anything in me, you could bring that to me and I would do my very best to hear you. And, and, and what if, just, if, let's just say they catch you on your worst day, rebuke you, couldn't, couldn't most of us just at least say, you know, that's really hard for me to hear, but I'm just going to take a few days and fast and pray about that and ask the Lord if there's any truth in that. Jonathan Edwards used to talk about trying to discern if there was any truth in the criticism being brought to them. Because usually, not always, not always, but usually, people do not rebuke us for things that have zero truth in them. So I I watch this with my kids all the time, right? One kid charges the other kid with something else because kids, they just—they didn't have to read this. They just rebuke each other all the time. Right, and, and, and the kid will say something like, you yelled at me when I was on the stairs. I wasn't on the stairs. Boy, talk about missing the point. <laughs> and you got this defense of I was not present on the stairs at the time of the crime. And the other kid's just going, you don't get it. We want to be easy to correct inviting correction, asking, would you correct me? If you see something, would you correct me? Because I want to live a consistent Christian life, and I realize that my eyes only look one direction, but you're seeing the 360 view of me. And, and, I, and I know that my own heart can often mask my sin from me. And then the church isn't a threat, but rather the church is a blessing where people might notice some problems with me and they could tell them to me. One of the most blessed things in my life is that I serve on an elder board where we love each other enough to point out and even in a sanctified way laugh at each other's weaknesses. It's a great blessing because there just are elders. You're like, man, you're relationally awkward. You just tell, brother, you're a little relationally awkward, so just watch yourself in this situation. Or they may be telling you, hey, you're, you're kind of a bit of a man pleaser, so don't be that way. In this situation. And there's a sense in which these guys are a help because they're aware of how poorly you can move into situations. And they can help you and speak to you and and notice those things. And there's enough love to know this guy didn't just say he hated me. He said he wanted me to succeed in the ministry task I've been given. I had an elder say to me, one of my dear friends say to me, You know, Ryan, you call a lot of people your best friend and then he began to describe one of the relationships that was severed that I had described as my best friend i'm like yeah i 'm painting i 'm just i 'm just glossing over that i 'm flattering in that situation and i said i'm sorry i 'll try not to use that word that way that that 's the wrong way to use that word. I have another brother who one of our co elders who He just he likes to use the minimum amount of words in every situation in his life. And so sometimes I have to go to him, I'm like, You gotta be effusive. They gotta hear you say a lot of things in this context. And he'll receive that from me. Because he knows I want him to succeed, I want him to to be able to walk in righteousness. I'm not saying it's never painful or awkward, but it's better. It's better. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. This is not looking good. Are we a half verse in here? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Someone might need to correct me. I had one of the brothers come up to me after the meeting and kind of correct me. To say, so I was just seeing if you'd be gentle. But, uh, uh, so, um, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the goal. That's the goal. Most church discipline should never be known by anyone but two people in the church. Most of the discipline that happens in the church should never be heard about. One of the things I'm aware of at Emanuel Baptist Church is that I'm not aware of most of the church discipline that happens. And because that's because members are being faithful... People are being faithful to discipline one another. And the goal, again, is redemptive. So that's the first stage. The first stage is, of church discipline is to initiate. Go and tell him his fault. Gain your brother. The second step of church discipline is to involve more. So the first step is to initiate. The second step in personal discipline is to involve more. Verse 16, If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, uh, some of you may be familiar that in the book of Deuteronomy, a person was not to be convicted of a crime or sentenced to death except by two or three witnesses. So when Jesus... The ultimate rabbi who would have had Deuteronomy down cold brings up the idea of two or three witnesses, he's using Old Testament language. And it's very important, this is one of the key things we need to understand if we're going to not abuse church discipline. It's very key that we see that he's using legal language that he is saying, you do not get to put someone out of the church because they really drove you nuts behind closed doors. No, no, this has to be proven. One time I was doing our church practices membership interviews where we meet with each person before they come into the membership of the church. And a guy said to me, he goes, what what will happen if you don't like me? I was kind of taken aback uh, by this question. And I said, me me liking you is, is just irrelevant in this situation. I want to love you. But one does not become a part of a local church by whether or not the pastor they're talking with likes you. But far too often, discipline I'm sure has happened in the course of church history simply because someone got on the wrong side of a member of the church or a wrong side of the pastor. And it's very important that in the matter of church discipline, you, you literally have rights. You're not just to be tossed out on your ear because you got on someone's bad side. It's only when something is legally established. Now this might seem like, man, there's some so legal and we love things that are organic. Yeah, I love things that are organic too. But the, the legality of this protects abuse. And if you go online tonight, you can find all kinds of websites devoted to churches that abuse. And one of the ways you avoid being a church that abuses is that sometimes there will be situations that come up where you say, Brother, you sinned against me. And there's no way to prove it. And they deny it. You're going to have to leave that one till the last day. You're going to have to leave it till the last day. Wait a second, I need justice! You'll get justice. Just not now. All human justice in human governments and in church governments is always what is called proximate justice. It's always just a little reflection of God's ultimate justice. Even when someone's given the death penalty for murder, that's not ultimately justice. Even though I believe that's biblically right. The sentence they need to get justice is not an immediate death. It's an eternity in hell the justice we we administer on this earth is always simply proximate it just approximates god's ultimate justice and so we as churches need to be careful that we don't put someone out because they're not into our church's vibe or because they simply got on someone's bad side but two or three people need to be able to establish that a biblical a sin against god's written word has been committed And it needs to be established in a way that there's no doubt about it. If ever at our church, if anyone were to bring up a church discipline situation and it was just sort of like, well, I've just noticed he's really in sin and it was one person, I would hope that a mass of people would stand up right then and there and say, this cannot be done. Because one person accusing another of sin is not sufficient grounds to change their lives and to put them out of the church of Jesus Christ. These things must be established so there will not be abuse. Verse 17, we get an intensification. So, first, we have the initiation go tell him his fault. Then we have involving more. And then, stage three is an intensification. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it. To the church. So there should be something public where the whole people of God come to know this sin. And they don't come to know it because one person said so, but because two or three people have established it. It's clearly a fact, and the person is now being told to the church. This too is a mercy. This is a mercy. It's a mercy in so many ways. One, Just by God's merciful grace, most of us snap to when one person tells us our sin. But by God's merciful grace, if you didn't snap to, when two or three people come to your house, you're like, I better think about this. And when the whole church you love is looking at you going, you've sinned, brother. Just repent. And we'll welcome you with open arms. It's just like God raising His voice. Some of the most powerful moments I've been at an Emmanuel have been, and I'm remembering one specifically, where sometimes the person being disciplined will be with us, present with us, as they're told to the church. And I just remember my co-pastor Jeff King looking at this man. We long for you to return. We want to welcome you into open arms with tears in his eyes speaking to this brother. One time we had an African man uh, at our church and he heard Jeff King just passionately pleading with one of the sinners to come back into the fold. And this African man, John Babatunde, said about Jeff King, he said, who is that beautiful man? And, 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 that, and so we, we tell Jeff that all the time. Who is that beautiful man? And, 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 and it, what what could be more beautiful than someone just pleading, come back? And the whole church saying, "Come back." (coughs) Only once it's told to the church is it appropriate to talk about it among the church. It was so amazing. I had one of those just so such encouraging moments the other day. Uh, Sadly, one of the members, one of the people in my small group right now, is before the church for discipline. It's a man I've known for over a decade. I love him but he's before the church. He's not been excommunicated, but his sin is so grievous and so ongoing that his name has been told to the church. And he's like I mentioned, he's in my small group. And um, someone raised, hey, should we think about how to pursue this man as a small group and how to text him and call him and meet with him and try to call him to repentance? And I, I said, yeah, we should do that. But because there were a few of our small group folks who hadn't been at the church meeting where his name had been told, I felt like I needed to give a a synopsis of what was happening. And one of the sweetest things that could have happened, happened right then and there. Right as I'm about to give a synopsis of what's happening in this man's life, one of our newest believers, a brand new Christian just baptized, stops me and says she doesn't want me to gossip about him. And... I spent ten minutes explaining why I didn't think it was gossip. Because it had been told to him alone, told to two or three, and then told to the church. But then I just said to her, I'm so glad you would rebuke your pastor from the Word of God. That's so good. I hope you will always do that. Because you want that kind of devotion where they're not devoted to the pastors or the leaders they're devoted to the Bible. And so I said, are you okay with me going on? She said, yeah. I've had that explained to me from the Word of God. You can go on. So I went on. Once it's told to the church, the church can talk about it openly and the church can pray. And beloved, that's no small thing. I remember one time we, we had a dear friend of ours She was a, prostitute from our neighborhood Uh, she became a member of the church repenting of her sins walking with the Lord and then she'd begun to fall away and we pursued her pursued her pursued her and then her name was told to the church and the church began to pray well the day after the church began to pray this young woman uh, twisted her ankle and had to stay in a chair for three days so we just all went where she was the Lord just said you just sit still the church is coming to talk to you, <laughs> and so that was just—it was just a marvelous, marvelous answer to prayer. One uh, one time, we we told the church about a man who was in drunkenness, and he repented, and it was so gloriously repented that we took two hundred dollars out of the church budget. We gave it to a small group and said, "Throw a party," and, and we just we just threw a party to celebrate. This this man had come home. And, and one of the things I've said to people over the years is, church discipline has brought some of the hardest situations into my life, but it's also brought some of the most glorious situations into my life. I'll tell you one of my favorites. Uh, we had a young woman come to Emmanuel, boy, maybe uh, 13 years ago or so, and she was kind of coming out of a really unstable, charismatic uh, background, but it seemed that she was converted and she came into the church and then she was growing in the church and, and then she disappeared and just kind of went AWOL. And so I was pursuing her and uh, an older woman in the church who's much like a, just a mother to us in the church. We were both pursuing her and pursuing her. And by the f- time we finally got a hold of her, she was in the club scene and she'd gotten pregnant. Uh, with a man she met there, but we finally got a hold of her and we pled with her to repent, and she did repent. But because she was pregnant, there was simply no way to deal with it just privately, because obviously the pregnancy was going to be public, and we didn't want the church just talking about her. We wanted everyone supporting her, and so she she came before the church and she just spoke of her sins and her failures to walk with the church. And I remember one of the things she said was, you didn't fail me, but I failed you. And she repented. Well, a 65-year-old couple in our church immediately brought her into their home and kept her with them until the baby was born. While that happened, another couple who'd never been able to have children renovated the upstairs of their home and got it ready for her and her child to live in. And then she did, and they they had her and the child there for a few years, and they became a grandma and grandpa to this little one. And then one of our deacons thought she was kind of cute, and so he married her. (laughs) And uh, now she's a homeschool mom just outside of St. Louis, just marvelously pouring into uh, five uh, beautiful children. You just, you don't, when you just let people go, oh, they just left? You don't get those stories of grace. When you don't speak to people about their sins, yeah, you make your life easier, but you don't get these tremendous triumphs of the Gospel. One caution about telling it to the church, one thing that can go wrong at the stage of telling it to the church, is usually what I've found happens, is that once you tell it to the church, you've got... Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight people. depends on what happens. Sometimes things can get more and more public. Not in a sinful way. But you've got a lot of people who are really tired. And they've poured out a lot of mercy. And then they tell it to the church. And there's a bunch of people who hear it for the first time and they kind of have a second wind. And they're ready to be more merciful than the people that have been being merciful. And they begin to doubt the people who have been showing grace already. And you kind of get a division in the church between the people who have been showing grace and now they're beat up and tired and the ones who are looking at the other people going, you're just judgmental. I'm ready to really show mercy. Make sure you honor those who have been caring for the person before it ever comes to the church. Honor them. And don't second guess them. And you don't need to because it only should have ever come to the church if it was legally established. That avoids abuse tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, let Him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, often in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus hung out with Gentiles and tax collectors. But He hung out with them as Gentiles and tax collectors. They were not believers. To speak about someone as a Gentile tax collector is to say, let them be to you as an unbeliever. And we've already discussed that we don't need to treat everyone who's been disciplined the same way. There'll be some where we just have to avoid them. There'll be others who are comfortable being in the presence of the people of God and are not divisive. But no matter what, they should not be treated as believers. They should not minister in the church like they were believers. They should not partake of the Lord's Supper like they are believers. When we engage them in conversation, it shouldn't be cold, but neither should it be, hey, brother, hey, sister. It should be, hey, John, I'm so eager to see you repent. And so there needs to be this communication that they are no longer part of the people of God. Then Jesus says these final words That I think we've looked at how we should initiate church discipline, and then we've looked at how we should involve more people in it, and then we've looked at how we should intensify it. Then we saw how we should excommunicate those who are in the church, those who are put out of the church. And Jesus just gives us a few words to let us know the significance of church discipline. And it is very significant. He says in verse 18 Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That verse can kind of freak us out because it almost sounds like the church gets to decide who's in and who's out in heaven. I think it's better to see it as the church reflecting who's in and who's out in heaven. When we bind someone to the church, bring them into the fellowship of the church, we should be clear this person has a credible profession of faith they believe the gospel and when the person believes the gospel we can say to them with the authority of God you are in the kingdom and if we practice discipline according to Jesus' words then we can also say with confidence you are not in the kingdom not because we can see in their hearts but because we have followed Christ's discerning word This is referred to in Matthew 18 as having the keys of the kingdom. The church has the keys of the kingdom. And who she binds is to be a reflection of who God has bound. And who she looses, lets out, is to be a reflection of who God has not bound and is not in the kingdom. And then Jesus gives this strange little assurance. He says, again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by My Father in heaven. Now, is the context about the prayer meeting. It is not. He's not dealing with prayer here. He's dealing with church discipline. And he says, if two or three of you agree about anything, they ask, it will be done for them, My Father in heaven, where two or three are gathered in My name, there am I among them. He's saying, listen... I'm, I'm engaged in this process with you. I'm, I'm with you in this. This is not something you're doing because you're mean-spirited or you're just way too conservative. It's, it's not like that. It's, it's something I'm engaged with you in. And, and if you're the tiniest little church, two or three, and you're following my word, I'm with you. No one may ever write a church history about you. No one may ever write a blog post about you. You may not make it into any church journal or anything like that. You may be somewhere where no one knows about anything you're doing. But if you're following the Word of God, you are reflecting heaven on earth. And Jesus is with you in that very activity. What a privilege to be with the Lord. To be to be the Lord's servants, his his ministers to keep the church pure, his ministers to restore those who might be otherwise lost, his ministers to keep each other. One of the things I tell people all the time is one of the reasons I'm happy about being a member at Emanuel and at Louisville is it would be just a really hard place to fall away. I just have people knocking down my door. It'd be the most miserable place to fall away on the planet. They'd be just after me, and we want to be that for one another to know that these people would not let me go. They love me. Lord, we come before You. And we thank You for this good Word. This good, true Word. Lord, it gives us uh, duty. It gives us light for our path. It gives us discernment about how to handle ourselves in different situations. It shows us our goal, which is to... uh, to make sure the church is pure and holy, reflects You on earth. Father, we praise You for this. Lord, we we thank You for the many, many acts of faithfulness this church has undertaken over the years when discipline has been involved. We beg You, Lord God, that You would just grow Lake Road, Manual, Lord, every church that preaches the gospel, we would love to see them be more and more faithful to reflect the character of the kingdom in our lives here in the local church. Lord, we pray that every single person here would be willing to confront sin. Lord, we pray that every single person here would be easy to confront. And we pray, Lord God, that You would honor that and keep us all the way to heaven. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.